to another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the London Borough of Lambeth and Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government. The citation for this case, 2019, UKSC 33. And this week we are getting into planning permission and how planning permission changes over time. The building at the heart of this case is a retail store in Streatham in South London. Planning permission was originally granted by the Secretary of State in 1985 so that the store could be used for selling DIY goods, but importantly, not for selling food. Now, the ways in which a building can be used are allowed to be changed, and in legal terms, a variation can be made under Section 73 of the Town and Country Planning Act 1990. This happened many times over the years for the store in Streatham, and it is the most recent variation in 2014 that is at the heart of this case. The proposed wording for the permission specifically referred to the quote, sale and display of non-food goods only, end quote. However, when the actual conditions were published, they did not make any reference whatsoever to the sale of food. The question then is whether the fact that this was omitted implies that the restriction on selling food is no longer in place. The investment management group in charge of the building sought a declaration from Lambeth Council that the store could indeed now be used for the sale of all types of goods, including food. This was refused, but an appeal to a planning inspector proved successful, right through to where we picked the case up at the Supreme Court level. The starting point for the judgment was, perhaps unsurprisingly, Section 73 of the Town and Country Planning Act 1990. This offers a number of options when it comes to planning permission. A new permission can be granted unconditionally, it can be granted but only subject to revision of the conditions, or it can be refused and the existing conditions would simply remain in place. The problem is that it is not exactly clear what should happen when the local authority is only making tweaks to one or two of the conditions. Guidance issued by the government makes it pretty clear that in order to avoid any doubt, the best thing to do is to restate all of the relevant conditions, although that is only advice and isn't a legal requirement. Instead, it is therefore necessary to look at the 2014 permission and try to get a sense of how the reasonable person would interpret the document given the context of these proceedings. The document itself is split into three sections, the actual variation of condition, the original wording, and the proposed wording. Given that the application was approved by the local authority, it is more than reasonable to assume that the proposed wording is being accepted in lieu of the original wording. What throws a spanner in the works is that while the proposed wording makes it clear that the permission relates to the sale of non-food goods, the actual decision notice does not. All of this raises a question about whether it can be implied that the condition relating to the sale of non-food goods no longer applies. For Lord Carnworth in his lead judgment, this would be a bit of a stretch for our reasonable reader, who, if they were going to infer anything, would infer that the restriction is to remain in place. This is evidenced by the fact that there is no indication from the notice or otherwise to suggest that the condition should no longer apply, and in the absence of that it is fair to assume that it will continue. Section 73 is commonly described as the power to amend or vary conditions, and to the reasonable person, that is exactly what is happening here. A change is being made in this 2014 permission, but that does not have to overwrite everything that has gone before. 
previous permissions continue to have effect, and the one from 2014 is just supplementary to these. For our own examination of this case, I think we can begin by noting that this is not far from an ideal situation. It shouldn't be necessary to ask the reasonable reader to infer anything, or to go through this hypothetical thought exercise at all. In the 2002 case of the Crown on the application of Reed and the Secretary of State for Transport, it was stated that the best case scenario is where the latest planning permission sets out all of the relevant conditions, both new and old. Not only does this help avoid the need for cross-referencing between various permissions over the years, but it also avoids costly litigation like this by eliminating uncertainty. While this case sets a useful precedent, it should not be seen as an excuse for local authorities to continually be lazy in the way that they approach planning permission applications. When I first came across this case, I was actually a little bit surprised by the result because it read to me as if the proposal itself had been varied in the final decision of Lambeth Council. To be honest though, I think that is probably more a case of me not thinking carefully enough about the application as a whole, more than anything else. Once you see that the proposal is being accepted, it is easier to understand that this should not necessarily impact any pre-existing permissions. If you went to A&E where you were diagnosed with a broken arm, that doesn't mean you no longer have any other pre-existing conditions like asthma, it just means you now also have a broken arm. I think that is a good analogy for what is happening here, and to try and imply otherwise doesn't make much common sense and is an attempt to invent a narrative that doesn't really exist. An article by Freeth's LLP suggests that this decision has the potential to sow confusion, but I don't think that this is true, and if anything it adds more clarity to this area of the law. Freeth's were the law firm who represented the investment management group that lost this case, so their take is not overly surprising, but still worth investigating to an extent. Essentially, the argument comes down to the approval by the Supreme Court of this cross-referencing process between permissions. If these go back many years, or if there are simply a lot of Section 73 variations, then it follows that it will be a time-consuming and potentially baffling exercise to try and sort out what conditions apply. In some cases, this might be true, but it does feel like quite an over-exaggeration, as the cross-referencing exercise will rarely be so complex and it should never be the case that two conditions would contradict each other. In fact, even if there was some confusion that remained after this cross-referencing exercise were complete, it is possible that this could be cleared up by the issuance of a certificate of lawfulness. Nevertheless, this is still a messy area of law, but it could be tidied up if there was a requirement for local authorities to cite all conditions in full when issuing a new permission in line with the Reed decision we mentioned earlier. That would have the potential to operate harshly if the authority were to omit anything, but would have a clear advantage of creating certainty in this area of the law. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. If you get a chance to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, that is always very much appreciated, especially if you give a five-star rating, although whatever you think is appropriate is obviously fine with you. I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!